Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. A man dies and meets St. Peter at the pearly gates. Peter says to the man, here's how it works. You need to have a hundred points to get into heaven. You tell me about all the good things you've done. They're all worth a certain number of points. And if you're told there's a hundred or more, you can come on in. Well, says the man, I was happily married to the same woman for 52 years. I never looked at another woman. I was attentive and loved her dearly. That's great, says St. Peter. That's worth two points. Hmm, says the man. This is going to be harder than I thought. Well, I attended church regularly, was baptized, volunteered my time, and tithed regularly and faithfully. Wonderful, says St. Peter. That's worth another point. One point, says the man. Okay, okay, I was involved with prison ministry for 25 years and shared Jesus with them. Wow, says Peter. That's another two points. Only two points? And at this rate, the man says, it'll only be by the grace of God that I'll ever get into this place. Bingo, says St. Peter. That's 100 points. Come on in. <laughs> That's not really how it works. I hope it doesn't work that way. But trying to score points to get into heaven by being good, but for sure, it does take the grace of God. We don't think about it much, but for most of us, the one thing that brings us to church on Sunday is the fact that we share a common faith in God. But isn't there supposed to be something more than just roll call? Today's scripture mashup from Joel and Luke sounds like the start of a bad joke. After the locust plague, two men walk into the temple to pray. But more so, the readings invite us to break down the barriers of the us versus them, or the either-or attitude. This polarized way of thinking has infiltrated our political structures, the universal church, and even our United Methodist denomination. You know, in a time of immense division, what if we were to truly live out not just by being, but by doing what we learn in all these kingdom stories of Jesus? So let's take a look at this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or as I call it, the story of the directionally challenged disciples. This familiar parable is rich with spiritual truth. In fact, it contains the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As verse 9 tells us, Jesus spoke this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on others. And I might add, at the expense of them as well. Jesus spoke often of the issue of righteousness, pleading with his original first as well as 21st century hearers to understand that their utter inability to be good, ethical, decent, enough to attain the kingdom of heaven by their own actions ain't good enough. And this was essential if they were to grasp the mission of Jesus here on earth, and that is to save sinners. So Jesus comes on the scene as a rabbi, as a teacher, and he starts to turn everything upside down and inside out. He takes what people have been told them and what's been reinforced to them over the years and even our centuries and says, let me give you a new way to look at it. 
And he turns things around and gives us a way of looking at things that, and of life that sounds countercultural and counterintuitive. It goes against what we think and feel sometimes, and somehow it just doesn't seem right. But I want you, what I want you to catch is that many of the people of his day put the focus of faith on the outside. And it's no different today. They thought that following Jesus or having a faith in God was about just outward appearances, looking and dressing the right way, just showing up, following the right rules, keeping the rituals, having it all together. And Jesus comes and says, no, look, it's the inside that I'm looking at. Because faith is an inside-out job. It begins with the work that God does in us. And then what he does in us comes through us. We may be dressed and ready to party, but we're going the wrong way. We live in times of unprecedented so-called natural disasters of hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, and yes, wildfires. And last week, I understand, was the great American shakeup, practicing how to survive an earthquake. But how about an avalanche? The good news is that the odds are that you are not going to die in one. Only about 30 people a year in the U.S. actually do. And I sometimes check the weather channel, I'm sure you do as well, just to see what your surroundings are like. And once I saw an article about how to survive, of all things, an avalanche. How do you survive something like this? Easy. Spit first. Dig second. That's it. It's pretty simple. One of the mistakes that people get when caught in an avalanche is that they get turned around and start digging the wrong way. They think they're digging up to survive, but in reality, they're making the situation worse by digging down. One person was actually found dead from an avalanche. He actually dug himself 30 feet down lower into the snow. He thought he was going up, but he was actually going down if only he had spit first. What? Still not getting it? <laughs> okay, you're turned around. You can't trust your instinct. You can't trust what feels right. So here's what you do. You get on your hands, get your hands free, and scoop out some of the snow right in front of you, right out of your mouth, and then you spit. And if the spit comes back down and hits you, then you're facing the right way. <laughs> and this is where you thank God for gravity. <laughs> and then you can start digging up. And if it doesn't come back, you need to get yourself turned around because you need a reality check. You think you're facing one way, but you may be facing a different way completely. You think you're going up, but you're actually going down. And here's what Jesus does when he comes on the scene. He gives us directions, people who are directionally challenged, people who think they're going up, but in reality, they're going down. He says, look, you think the way to get to the top is by digging to the top, but it turns out that the way to the top is actually down. He gives us a reality check. It seems countercultural, counterintuitive, but it's the way to be right, to be justified with God and to be going in the right direction. Jesus tells this parable to help us to compare two directional systems, his and the world's. It's a story about two men who go to the temple to pray. And so the Pharisee begins his prayer by what he's praying about himself. 
He uses the personal pronoun I several times. It's all about me. The focus is all about what I have done. But wait a minute. He does give thanks to God, doesn't he? And that's a good thing. I mean, it's good. You start your prayer by saying, God, let me thank you for something. He says, God, thank you. I'm not like other people. <laughs> you may have heard of the TV show called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? It was hosted by a comedian and a Christian. His name is Jeff Foxworthy. And before that, he had a popular comedy routine of one-liners. You might be a redneck if, and you fill in the blank, I like one of them, you might be a redneck if you spent more on your truck than on your education. <laughs> so let me blend this parable with the platitudes of, you might be a Pharisee if you catch yourself saying, you aren't going to talk to me like that. In other words, pride. It makes us defensive and unwilling to hear criticism or correction. It's saying, I'm immune from any kind of advice. You might be a Pharisee if you catch yourself saying, I'm not going to be the one to apologize. Some words just don't come out of a prideful mouth like, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Proud people are obsessive about being undefeated in an argument. You might be a Pharisee if you catch yourself saying, did you hear about gossip puts other people into places. We can always find a tax collector or two in any group in a room. There are convenient steps on the way to the top of the human heat. You might be a Pharisee if you catch yourself saying, I don't need anybody's help. Did you notice how the Pharisee never asks God for anything? Just checking in, God. It's all under my control. Hey, I've got this. Thanks a lot. Pride keeps us from realizing how desperately we do, in fact, need God. So here's the danger of self-performance-based faith. Uh, self faith. We start to believe the charade. We replace the heart with the hands, what I can do. And meanwhile, across the room is the prayer of that tax collector. Yes, he's a Roman collaborator who lines his own pocket, but don't think of him as a first century IRS agent, but more of a Bernie Madoff, if those you remember. He was convicted of a $65 billion Ponzi scheme and got a 150-year prison sentence. But in this parable, this man's prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner, it wasn't lip service. And though only a few words, those words offer a picture of humility, a prayer from the inside out. This man has come to the temple for a real encounter with God, and no one else matters. He stands off to himself, and he has the powerful experience of a man who knows just who he is and who God is. And so as Jesus ends this story, he turns everything upside down and inside out. He takes the task that the prayer of this sanctimonious Pharisee and puts it down and commends the prayer of this despised tax collector. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And what does justified mean? It means just as if it never happened. And if you really get it, then you'll live a changed life for God. And no, we don't know what this tax collector does, but for us, do we get it?
What about us? Is our direction changed? And because it sounds so countercultural and, and counterintuitive, it's easier for, easy for us to jump in and say, wait, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. Jesus, I think you should have been using some notes because you got this thing all mixed up. I think what you meant to say was that the Pharisee went home justified because he justified himself. And I mean, Jesus, he fasts twice a week. He gets credit for that, right? And he gives a tenth of everything. Isn't that extra credit? So I think what you meant to say, Jesus, was that he's the one who went home justified because just look at him, Jesus. I mean, just look at him. Look at what he's done. Look at how he's dressed. Look at how he talks. Look at how many points he's scored. Look, look, look. And then you start to realize that maybe, just maybe, what Jesus is looking at and what you and I are looking at are two different things. Jesus says, no, this tax collector is the one who went home right with God. And that's what parables do. It makes us think. And maybe even about as the prophet Joel writes, how after an invasion of locusts, then it comes a season of, of all things, rejoicing. I will repay you for all the years that locusts have eaten. And how easy it is to be over-focused on what you think you have, like the Pharisees and his ego, or what has been taken, the tax collector's character, and not see God's grace. Now, none of us, I hope, have lost it all in a locust invasion, but maybe we've come close. You know, with this fire season, Julie and I were evacuated in 2008 during the freeway complex fire up in Yorba Linda. But I have never been hungry because there was never enough food to eat. I've never known homelessness, that is, with no place to go at night. I've never been reduced to wearing just clothes on my back. In fact, like many of us, my closet has always been overfilled. And when I look at the clothes labels, I see a virtual United Nations of manufacturers from some of the poorest countries in the world. I never had to go to a welfare agency to ask for public assistance to make it to another day. I have, though, stood in the unemployment line when my employer decided to downsize his company. I've never been to prison except to lead spiritual retreats. I've never been a victim of crime, but I've had weapons drawn at me by prison guards during a false alarm in the chapel. I have volunteered at a Salvation Army at the San Fernando Valley to serve meals, but initially out of a big pity party of being a single parent without my children on Thanksgiving. And for the next couple of years after that, I went back every single week, sometimes bringing Jocelyn and Michael in to give help there as an expression of giving thanks to God. And when I moved to Garden Grove one Christmas, I was invited to someone's shelter under a bridge. And I blessed his home with a feel of his homeless neighbors, and we sang Christmas carols all night around a small fire. Now, none of this is meant to be said out of pride. I'm not a Pharisee but it's done out of my genuine thankfulness to God. But doesn't it seem strange that we are more thankful for God only when we have come out of a circumstance that have been truly embarrassing, extremely painful, or even totally devastating? It almost seems that the more worse off we are, the more able we are to receive and perceive God as our Redeemer, just like the tax collector. Who in this gathering 
has not been blessed with many times of plenty from health, family, friends, economic prosperity, material possessions. And at those times, we are most thankful but often take God's blessings for granted. And when we have been touched with loss, live in grief, or are besieged with woe, when all the things, including joy itself, for which we were once thankful, have seemingly been taken away, we pray to God for deliverance. In time, we know and feel in the depths of our being that God is faithful. And when restored in faith and favor, we see and receive God's grace once more. And this is true in our earlier reading of Psalm 65, when it talks about praising God, but how often praising God comes after a loss of some kind, when we are truly shaken. But no matter what happens, no matter what others may say, no matter if locusts have taken everything from us, God is our fortress, and he is yours as well, and we will never be shaken. Today is my last official Sunday under appointment here. I'm not waving the white flag, but instead, I'm waving this. <laughs> Some of us will feel shaken, and I know I still feel unsteady, and I'm feeling steady right now. You may have questions, and you aren't the first ones looking for answers, because when you think about it, the disciples always ask Jesus questions. Just like my kids, Joss and Mike and Holly, ask me questions, and you just wait, Ellie will ask you questions too. They ask that why question. You've heard it before and it drove me crazy. And I usually made up the answers, or just said, because. And I still do that every so often with them. And I sometimes turn the tables on them. Why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue? Where does water come from? Do fish breathe in water? Who invented time? What happens when there's daylight savings time for, you know, time clocks? What can't you, why can't you tickle yourself? How come McDonald's doesn't sell hot dogs? Is the light on the refrigerator still on when the door closes? Why do cockroaches die upside down when you walk in the room? Do vegetarians eat animal crackers? Where do babies come from? If God sneezes, do you say, bless you? And when you go through the Gospels, you hear the disciples saying, hey, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand? Hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Hey, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Hey, Jesus. How come we can't cast out this demon? Hey, Jesus, what does this parable mean? Hey, Jesus, should we cast down fire from heaven and blast the Samaritans? Hey, Jesus, which of us is the greatest? Hey, Jesus, what do you mean in a little while? And all the time, it's, hey, Jesus, or our questions. Do you think Jesus ever got tired of the questions? You know, underneath all the questions is that big question, why? Everyone has that question. Why cancer? Why violence? Why that car accident? Why hunger? Why injustice? Why that fire? Why malaria, refugees, war, and why changes? In a little while, we will all be going through a change as Julie and I grow 
from this place and follow God's leading in our lives apart from this warm and loving church called Famco. And yes, like kids and the disciples, we have the why and hey Jesus questions. But in a little while, the light will come on and it will shine on the landscape with God's glory, healing the grief with an awesome and visionary ministry with Pastor Bill and the AIM team and all of you church leaders, the staff, all of you will make this happen for God and the invitation for others to be part of this new world that is before us. And God in his great love and compassion has given us his spirit to fill in the gaps so this church, this community will continue to grow and know that above all else we choose Christ. From the depths of our hearts, Julie and I thank you ever so much for your warmth, of your hospitality, both in 2000 when we first came here and four years later, for four, for four years, and again in 2016 when we rebounded here. It's been such a joy for us to share the life and love of ministry with all of you over the years, be it with the preschool, the Gujarati Indian Church, the youth ministry, the homesteaders, UMW rummage sale, cranberry teas, wayfarers ask, trips to Mexico, and so much more. One of the books I've read had this wonderful, insightful quote. It says, do not let your expectations get in the way of what God wants you to experience. Do not let your expectations get in the way of what God wants you to experience. So as we set aside our own personal expectations and learn to embrace our God experiences, even with all of our hey Jesus and why questions, we can someday, someday, somehow, in a way none of us can now understand, we will be grateful because we are no longer directionally challenged disciples of Jesus Christ. In a little while, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Thanks be to God.